Amen, amen. Well, good morning. Welcome. Good to see you all. Uh, fun to actually be in the same room, in the same space together. Uh, I kind of chuckled with someone this morning. They said it's been over a year since I've been in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning. So we're, we're thankful to the Lord uh, for this great provision. Uh, and yeah, you can clap for that. <clears throat> but listen, listen, church, listen. Having more chairs in the room isn't the point. Gathering around the person of God is the point. So whether there's 50 chairs or 500 chairs, we couldn't get 500 chairs in here, but even if we could, that's not the point. The point uh, is that we get to worship our great and glorious Savior. So I want to invite you uh, to turn with me to 2 Samuel 13. We're going to continue to worship the Lord uh, by looking to see what He has to say in His Word. 2 Samuel 13 and 14 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, and a number of years ago, I was trying to convince a friend of mine to do one-to-one -one Bible reading with me. Wasn't a believer, uh, didn't necessarily seem all that interested, but I would continue to ask him, hey, do you want to do this? Will you read uh, the Bible with me? And, ah, I don't know, I don't know, maybe, ah, let me think about it. And so finally, I remember we sat down and I'm like, hey, will you do one-to-one -one Bible reading with me? And he, I remember he looked at me and he just said, Mike, if I'm going to read a book, Honestly, I just want to read a book that has a lot of fighting and a lot of sex in it. And I laughed and I said, then the Bible's the perfect book for you uh, because there is a lot of both of those elements throughout. And in fact, the text that we come to uh, today is steeped in those elements. Uh, it's steeped in this, uh, really what's going to be a quite graphic and explicit text uh, that, that, that details both rape and murder. Now, for you parents... Uh, hopefully you saw the video on Thursday, but, but, but trying to warn you about what was coming. And I'm sensitive to the fact, uh, particularly in this situation, we have some younger ears in the room. Uh, so I'm going to try to be a little more subtle with some of the things that we're discussing and some of the items in the text. Uh, but this is God's Word, and it's quite graphic in some of the things that it's describing. And we're going to address uh, what God has here in the text. And so what the Bible is going to lead us to this morning is this idea right here, that sin attempts to distort, deceive, and destroy God's truth, love, and wisdom. Let me say that again, that sin attempts to distort, deceive, and destroy God's truth, love, and wisdom. Uh, and so before we get into the text, before we go any further with what God has for us, I think we would do well to pause, to pray, to ask God to open our eyes uh, to what he has for us here this morning, and then we'll get into uh, these uh, couple of chapters here in Second Samuel. Why don't you pray with me? And as always, we'll pray for another church in the area. Gracious and good Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. God, we thank you uh, that your word uh, is, is not afraid. God, it doesn't shy away from uh, some of the more wicked and heinous realities of life, but in fact, it deals with it. It goes right at it. And so, God, this morning as we open your word, and it's going to be pointed and sharp in some ways, uh, and it's going to be graphic and explicit in some ways, God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, God, that we would not shy away from the truths of your word, but that we would receive and embrace what you have for us. And so even in the ways that this text is just uh, really quite gritty, uh, God, would you move and work within your people to accomplish your purposes? And God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. And this morning, we're praying for Foothills Fellowship and for Pastor Mike Potter. God, we do pray that you'd be moving and working in them uh, in the same way that we would ask and hope that you're moving and working within us. And so God, help us to see. God, help us to, uh, to be challenged, to be encouraged, to be convicted, whatever it is that you want to accomplish this morning. Uh, we pray that your word, through the work and the power of your spirit, would accomplish your purposes. And we are submitted to that, Lord Jesus. And so we pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is False Love and Faux Wisdom. Uh, false Love and Faux Wisdom. Uh, and, and as we look at this, these couple of chapters in a broad sense, there's just really this gritty and grimy and quite perverse sense uh, that we're going to find in the text. There, there are no warm fuzzies for us this morning in this account. Um, and in saying that, one of the things I want to just note right at the outset before we get into the text is that one character is going to be noticeably and largely absent from the text. And that character is the Lord himself. Uh, and, and what you're going to notice is that God does not speak. Uh, God is not going to be consulted. God is not going to be asked. God's not going to be sought out. He's not going to be pursued. Nothing of that nature. 
In fact, the only references that we're going to find to God are going to be passing references to him in name only. Uh, and, and so really what we see here are a number of scenes that are unfolding in lives that are alienated from the person of God. And so if you can't remember what your life was like apart from the Lord, or, or, or maybe you're struggling to, uh, to, to connect with that with other people in your life, the Bible is going to reveal that very grim reality for us here this morning. Uh, this is a false love. This is a faux wisdom that's unfolding. And what we're going to see is sin's attempt to distort, to deceive, and destroy God's truth and love and wisdom. So look at chapter 13 with me. And uh, we'll deal with each chapter uh, as a total unit. Uh, and when we look at chapter 13, here's what we see. Uh, in broad stroke, we see the destruction of false love. We see the destructive nature, the destructive reality of false love as it's playing out here in the text. Now, context is crucial, right? Context is crucial. Uh, and this account comes right on the heels of David's sin and subsequent murder with Bathsheba and Uriah. And so we shouldn't be surprised that now David's children are, are imitating what their father has done, and we're going to see sexual sin and murder unfolding from his kids uh, and really highlighting the corrosive and destructive effects of sin. And so the first thing that we see is this destructive pursuit of false love. Right, part of the, the destructive or the destruction of false love is there's a pursuit, uh, and the pursuit is destructive of a false love. We see that in verses 1 through 19. Look at your Bibles. Um, this is really a graphic and uh, absolutely devastating account. I'm going to read parts of it. I won't read all of it, uh, but, but I do want us to see what's going on here. So here's what God's Word has to say. I'm going to start in verse 1, and it says this. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. So we're introduced to three different children of David, Absalom, uh, who's introduced here, and really the next six chapters, uh, Absalom is going to be at the forefront, really at the center of the story that unfolds in the account, although for the next 19 verses, uh, he's largely going to be uh, absent. Uh, and then we're introduced also to Amnon and to Tamar, and we're told that Amnon loves his half-sister. Now, part of us should just be like, ooh, that's kind of creepy already, uh, and hopefully you have that sense, although that's not Amnon's issue, because look at what it says in verse 2. It says, Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, you can almost see him kind of confessing, he's like, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And John, Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. And so this, this scheme is hatched. Hey man, if you just pretend to be sick and then she can come in and then who knows what will happen. And, and so they lay the groundwork for that. They get David's permission. I'm going to jump down to verse 9 because they begin to execute this plan. Here's what it says. Tamar is now there with food. Verse 9, she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send, everyone, uh, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Now just make note of this, loved ones. When secrecy is desired, sin is often close behind. Don't miss that. Get everyone out. No accountability. I want anyone to know what's going on. And when you're desiring secrecy, sin is close behind. Verse 10, Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her. And he said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. And what incredible composure she has in such a moment. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be what is one of the outrageous fools in Israel. And pleading with him, hoping that maybe, just maybe, he would stop, she offers this alternative. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Now, you would like to think the king would withhold her from him, but who knows at this point? But anything to escape this moment. Verse 14. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. 
And so he rapes his half-sister. Such a wicked and insidious act. And as wicked and as insidious as that is, notice what it says next. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. Get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away, or this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. See, in the law, if you were to have sex outside of marriage, the law obligated that the man would marry the woman as a, if nothing else, as a financial covering for her. And so she's completely exposed at this point in every sense of the word as he kicks her out. But she said to him, or sorry, verse 17, he called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. And just this tragic scene of Tamar, you can see her as she flees. In verse 18 and 19 it says, now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves for this for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So the servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Such a disturbing and insidious account. And Amnon treating his half-sister as nothing more than an object to be discarded, and he sends her away. This is the destructive pursuit of false love. Now, Church, listen, sin has a way of wanting to masquerade as something that's legitimate, as something that's real. But it will always, 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 at some point in time, be exposed as something that's false, right? Or revealed as false. Amnon said, I love you, right? He said, I loved her. He said, uh, he said multiple times that he loved her. He didn't love her, he lusted after her. And that's what's getting exposed here. He acted in a selfish, greedy, lustful way. He violates Tamar as this object. He exploits her for his personal benefit. And all while disregarding God's commands, both on sexual fidelity as well as with respect to incest. And it leaves this wake of destruction. The shame and the damage and the hurt that falls upon Tamar. Now listen. We live, we live in an age where sex is, is, is held up as this great thing. Uh, there's no consequence. There's no responsibility. Just do whatever you want. But what we have to understand when it comes to sex, that outside of God's specific design, that any sexual activity outside the confines of marriage, the way that God has orchestrated it, that sex will always, always, always be destructive. Did you hear that? It will always be destructive. I don't care what you see. I don't care what you hear on TV. It will always destroy. It really is that black and white. It really is that concrete. Now, within God's context, within God's proper design, it's a beautiful and wonderful gift. But outside of it, it's incredibly destructive. Right, this is the destructive pursuit of false love. Here it's seen in this sexual exploitation. Here's what I want to do. Let me just ask you a few questions here as we think about this destructive pursuit of false love. Ask yourself this. Are there ways that my thinking or my conduct is out of alignment with God's design for sex? Are there, are, are, are there, are there ways that you're entertaining? Are there ways that you're pursuing thoughts or ideas or even relationships that are outside the boundaries and the confines that God has set up for us? Are there ways that we're trivializing sex, that, that, that we're diminishing what God has given to us in that? Are, are there ways that we're casual and flippant with God's good gift? Or maybe are there ways that you have begun to adopt and embrace society's view of sex and in the process being lulled into this destructive lie that wants to destroy? This is the destructive pursuit of false love. And this is a wicked and heinous act committed by Amnon, and it should be dealt with justly and swiftly. And so as wicked as what Amnon does, you could argue that what we see next is just as wicked, if not more wicked, because what we see here is the destructive absence of justice. There's no recourse. There's no consequence. There's no accountability. Look at verse 20 and following. Here's what it says. 
It says, her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. Now, now Absalom offers this small encouragement, although it seems really cold in light of what's just happened. Now, now we'll come back to Absalom because he's got some other things that he's scheming and planning. Here's Tamar's response to this. I mean, this is just heartbreaking. Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Tamar, in a matter of moments, her life is completely upended. And don't miss this. Let this be a reminder to all of us how quickly sin can destroy. That in a matter of moments, her life is completely altered. And loved ones, we must understand just how quickly and how comprehensively sin can distort and destroy. And then you get David. It's kind of like, yeah, where, where, where you been in all of this, David? Well, look at verse 21. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. Great. Who wouldn't be angry at this? But look at the beginning of verse 22. Now it moves back to Absalom. Wait, wait, wait. wait. David's angry, but, but, but what else? Nothing else. He doesn't do anything else. Now, his role as king should have led him to act judicially. His role as a father should have led him to protect his daughter. Right? It should, in either sense, this should have prompted some action. But he does nothing. Why? Because David is compromised by his own sexual sin. He is paralyzed and neutralized by the sexual sin that he committed a couple chapters ago. And it's compromised his, his ability and his willingness to confront others and their sexual sin. Loved ones, this is why righteous living actually matters. Right? The reverberation of our sin, uh, as it plays out, don't miss how it plays out, because it impacts and influences the ways that we handle other sin, both in our lives and in the lives of others. And you think about David in this moment. I, I thought about Micah 6, 8. Remember, Micah just lays out, he's told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, right? There's three things that the Lord requires. The first was what? To do what? Justice. The second was to love kindness or mercy. And the third was to walk humbly with God. Yet he's doing none of these things, right? It started because he wasn't walking humbly, humbly with the Lord. And so as he fails to walk humbly with the Lord, there's an absence of kindness and justice gets distorted. And that's what's happening here. And what's so interesting is in David's abdication of justice, there's this vacuum that begins to, uh, to, to, to open up, and Absalom is going to step into that vacuum. Now, I, don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. Absalom is completely responsible for his actions. But had David done the just and righteous thing, there'd be no need for Absalom to step into that vacuum. There'd be no need for a plan, no need for a scheme, no need to respond. It would have been dealt with. But the failure of David to do his job created this vacuum. And I think as we think about that, we do well to consider our own lives. Are there places, are there spaces in my life where I'm ignoring or I'm abdicating the right, the just, the fair thing to do? And I don't care how big or small the matter is. Abdication is abdication. The compromise in the little thing is what leads to the compromise in the big thing. And so I'm like, well, it's not that big of a deal. It will be if you don't learn to deal with it in the little things. Am I able to see how others are harmed or hurt when I fail to act justly or righteously? And am I able to see the vacuum that's created when I fail to act justly or rightly? This is the destructive absence of justice. And it leads to what we see unfolding in these next handful of verses the destructive malice and unforgiveness. Right, David does nothing. Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. Verse 22, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. At one level, you can understand that. At another level, you just gotta get to the point where you forgive, right? And so what we see unfolding here is the destructive malice and unforgiveness. And so it says this in verse 23 and following, after two full years... Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Remember, that, that was usually a, a time of great prosperity and feasting, and, and so they would shear all the sheep, and they'd see all their prophet, and they'd celebrate all that God had done. 
And so he invites him, hey, why, why don't you come? And so Absalom came to the king in verse 24 and said, behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He's like, man, you don't want to have to feed all of us. That's a, that's a bit, we don't want to do that. And Absalom, it says, he pressed him, but he, David, would not go, but gave him his blessing. He's like, I'm not going to go, but you, you go ahead and go and, and, and enjoy that. Verse 26, then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. <laughs> now, the antenna has to be going off in David. I mean, the, the text says at least this uh, to some level. The king said to him, why should he go with you? Like, why do you want to bring your brother? And we're not told the specifics of the conversation outside of this in verse 27, that Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. And then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when, it, when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and mounted his mule and fled. In the next few verses, there's a little confusion uh, in communicating with David. Initially, they're saying all the king's sons have died, uh, and only to realize in the end that only Amnon is dead. I'll let you read that on your own. Uh, but let's talk here for a moment about the destructive malice and unforgiveness. Because for two years, for two years, Absalom nurses this hatred, this malice, this bitterness toward Amnon. And, and in one sense, right, the, the, the part of us that wants to see some kind of justice, the, the, there's almost a sense where it's like, well, I, 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 don't, I don't approve of the murder, but like, I'm glad someone did something. But here's the problem. The way in dealing with this went outside the divine covenant and the divine law that God had instituted. And what is driving Absalom in this is his unforgiveness, right? It's his unforgiveness, his lack of forgiveness, this malice that leads him to murder Amnon in cold blood. And as we think about this, let me just make two notes here for us. Just get right to the point in this. First of all, make note of this. Vengeance belongs to God, not to us. Did you hear that? Vengeance doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. That's what he says in Deuteronomy 32. That's what he says in Romans 12. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. That's, that's what God says. Right? Vengeance is going to be accomplished by God. It's not going to be accomplished by us. And it's going to be accomplished by God because it's possessed by God. It's not possessed by us. It's not owned by us. Now, we might try to even the score. We might try to, or sorry, get even or settle the score. But we are incapable of producing legitimate vengeance. And so ask yourself, are there situations, are there circumstances where you're attempting to take vengeance into your own hands? I'm going to settle this. And as you think about that, just consider this for a moment. If I were to go over to your house and I walked into your kitchen and I just took a pot and I left with it without your permission, we would call that what? That's theft, right? right? I'm taking something that doesn't belong to me. See, Taking vengeance when it belongs to God and you have no right or possession of it is theft. When you attempt to take vengeance into your own hands, you are attempting to steal something that belongs to God that you have no rightful possession to. Vengeance belongs to God, not to us. Secondly, make note of this. Forgiveness is always required of us. Always. Turn to the person next to you and say, always. Always demanded of us. It's required of us. The Bible's unflinching about this. Right? The, the, the Bible uh, just has no problem telling us in all kinds of different situations, yeah, you got to forgive. You got to forgive. You got to forgive. Right? You, you won't find in the Bible a verse that speaks about forgiveness and then qualifies it by, well, here are the places where you don't have to forgive. So you've got to forgive in most of these things, but here and here we'll let you, you don't find that, right? We're told to forgive. And oftentimes what we see in the Bible are these grandiose examples of forgiveness. Think of Matthew 18 and the parable of the unforgiving servant being a great example of that, right? 10,000 talents that he's forgiven, right? We're told to forgive. Why? Because God has forgiven us in Jesus. And so we should forgive others. 
And forgiveness, what forgiveness really is, loved ones, forgiveness is a means by God for us to release our bitterness and our anger and our frustration to the Lord and allowing Him to address the situations and the ways that we've been wronged or mistreated. It's, it's letting God take vengeance into His hands and not trying to take it into our own hands. It's us saying, I'm going to take this person off my hook and I'm going to set them on God's hook. That's what forgiveness is. So, let me just ask you, are there any areas in your life where you're withholding forgiveness? Any areas, any person, any item, anything that you're like, oh, I don't know if I can forgive them for that. Any situations, any relationships that you're unwilling to release to the Lord because there's no exceptions in this. There's no qualifiers in this. A choice to withhold forgiveness is a choice to sin. Do you hear that? A choice to withhold forgiveness is a choice to sin. Now, I get it. I get how people can be so wicked, so vile, so malicious, so hateful towards one another. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in my office and heard some of the most disturbing things that people, that one person can do to another person. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with a woman and she uh, shares about how she was raped, just like Tamar was. I can't tell you, uh, multiple times, multiple times, people talking about family members of theirs that have been murdered, right? And on and on we can go with all the different things. I get it. But the hardest thing, but also the easiest thing in that moment is to tell people, hey, you have to forgive. See, it's hard because sometimes it feels cold, but it feels like, man, you're saying, you're sharing all these hard, horrible things. And so there's something that feels cold. But listen, a false love, a false love lets someone think that it's okay for you to carry this malice and bitterness that's going to destroy you because you don't want to release this. That's a false love. Here's why it's easy. Because forgiveness is the greatest gift that you can give to yourself, right? And releasing yourself from the anger and the bitterness and the malice. Forgiveness is always, always, always required of us. This is the destructive malice and unforgiveness. Amnon is dead. Word gets back to David. Notice in verse 34, Absalom fled. In fact, let me jump down to verse 37 here. We'll wrap up this first section. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, the king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And this final thing we see is the destructive isolation and relationship. But Absalom flees. He finds himself in isolation. He finds himself alone for the next three years, right? Because we're not meant to be isolated. We're not meant to be separated. We're not meant to be alone. I think COVID nailed that principle for us, right? We understand that uh, probably in a way that we'll never forget in our lifetimes. We're not meant to be alone. But this chapter with all its gritty, grimy, insidious, vile realities. This is the destruction of false love. So before I move to chapter 14, let me just take a moment here and, and hold up in contrast to what we're seeing in chapter 13 with, with, with an exhibit or a modeling of God's true love. So let's just let the Lord and who He is stand in contrast to what we see here in chapter 13. In fact, three things that I'll just mention real quick about God's modeling of true love. The first is this that God's love is selfless. God's love is selfless. Amnon had no regard for what he could do for Tamar. He only cared what he could do for himself with Tamar. But he used her. He was selfish. Well, the Lord's love is selfless. You think about what Jesus says in Mark 10, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. You think about what Paul tells us in Philippians 2 when he's talking about uh, looking not only to your own interest but the interest of others, that we have this mind which is ours in Christ Jesus and then it walks you all the different ways that God so selflessly loves us and serves us and cares for us because God's love is a selfless love in contrast to the incredibly selfish love. It's not even love, but it's lust that we see here in chapter 13. Secondly, that God's love sanctifies See, where Amnon was concerned with fulfilling his lustful desire, Tamar was nothing more than an object to satisfy his lust. God's love sanctifies us and conforms us to God's image. Do you remember in Ephesians 5, in that passage we're talking about husbands and wives, 
And it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then it starts talking about all the ways that Christ has loved the church. And it talks about how he, how he sanctifies and how he cleanses her. Amnon defiled Tamar. God sanctifies us so that we're holy. Praise God for that. Thirdly, make note of this, that God's love is faithful. God's love is a faithful love. It's committed, it's honorable, it's trustworthy. Right? Amnon's level of commitment was tied solely to his satisfaction. The moment he didn't want her around, you're out. And yet God's been faithful to us in spite of our profound unfaithfulness. Just think about Hosea here for a moment. Right? Think about the fact, God told one of his prophets to go marry a prostitute. A habitually unfaithful woman to symbolize the nature of Israel's relationship to God. That's us. That, 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 that's us. That's what he's saying. Hey, this is you and I. Like, we're, we're habitually unfaithful. And yet the Lord continues to pursue us because God is faithful in spite of our unfaithfulness. And so praise God, right? Praise God that while we see this incredibly destructive reality of false love, that we serve a God that models and exhibits true love. And so on the heels of the destruction of false love here. Now let's move to chapter 14. And we see the deception of faux wisdom. Right, this is, it, it's fake wisdom. It's, it's pseudo wisdom. It's, but it's not, it's not actual wisdom. There's this semblance, there's this appearance that, that, that maybe at initial glance feels like it's wise. Yet when we begin to press into it, we realize, yeah, this is lacking in wisdom. Because, loved ones, the greatest lies are rooted in elements of truth, right? You get little bits and pieces of truth in there. It's enough to make it believable. And that's part of what we see going on here, right? There's elements of truth, but they're, 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 they're misapplied, and they're stripped of their context, or they're devoid of their full meaning. And so they have this appearance of wisdom, but in reality, it's a faux or fake wisdom. And so let me read verses 1 through 17 and really set the stage for what happens here. Um, because what, what happens is a woman gets sent by Joab to David. And, and I think it's meant in some ways to mirror uh, what we see with Nathan and David. And yet I think Nathan and David also uh, offer a stark contrast to help us identify why this isn't actually true wisdom. So here's what it says. It says this, starting in verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And in saying that, in fact, if you read the end of chapter 13, you see the beginning of chapter 14, it seems like David really misses his son, and maybe that's the case, although it's entirely possible. You read the Hebrew, but the Hebrew seems to be far more uh, harsh in that, that, that David's heart is, is more grieved about Amnon than it is about Absalom. And so, so uh, Joab's concern here is somewhat puzzling. We don't totally know, outside of the fact that he wants David in some way, shape, or form to get focused and so verse 2, Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner. Now, that should be a clue for us. Right? Because if you remember in chapter 13, we saw that word pretend a few times. Uh, and that, that was a very, very negative thing. And so here again, we've got this pretending going on. Pretend to be a mourner. Put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil. But behave like a woman who's been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And so here she comes right, to share uh, with, with David. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on, the, on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Alas, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. And there was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. They say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. She's like, my, my husband's dead. My one son killed my other son. Now they want to kill the second son because that was the just thing to do in the law, by the way. And, and I'm, I'm trying to, can you help me spare my second son? Basically, she says, the latter part of verse 7, they would destroy the heir also, lest they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. And so David is, is somewhat noncommittal initially in verse 8. He says, go to your house. I'll give orders concerning you. And so she presses in in verse 9, maybe even getting at the, the, the crux of the matter. She says, On me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. Like, well, should you do this? I'll, I'll bear the guilt. Right? Someone has to bear the guilt, so I'll bear it instead of you. Kind of insinuating, yeah, I understand we're kind of cutting a corner here. Verse 10, the king said, If anyone says anything to you, 
bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. And she, David's like, listen, you're not going to bear the guilt. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. And so she pushes back in verse 11. Please let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son be not destroyed. She's like, I just need you to tell me that they can't kill my son. And at the end of verse 11, David concedes. He says, if the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And to be clear, this is an abdication of justice. And the woman said, now she's like, okay, well, now that he's done that, the, the trap's been set, now it's time for me to come in for the kill. And the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to the Lord my king. And David said, speak. And the woman said, why have you, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. She's like, wait, if you would let this son live, then you should let Absalom live. That's her logic here. And she says in verse 14, we must all die. We're all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so the banished one will not remain an outcast. I've come to say this to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought I'll speak to the king it may be that the king will, will perform the request of his servant and in short what you have going on here from the woman is this this is an appeal to mercy absent of justice that's what's going on here and, and, and when you read this, this account right at initial glance maybe you're kind of like oh this seems like a, a decent thing this is maybe helpful and yet there's other things you're like, yeah, but there, there, there's some problems here. And so it's perplexing, right? We know that she's pretending. We know that Joab is scheming in this in some way, although we don't really know why he's doing it. But then you've got other things that she say that are really pointed. And so we're left kind of wavering or toggling. Like, what do we do with her? How do we think about her? How do we respond to her? And as I said a moment ago, I think comparing her to Nathan and what each is endeavoring to do and who has sent each of them is really, really helpful. Nathan, sent by God, used a story to bring about repentance and righteousness. This woman, sent by Joab, employed a story to manipulate the situation and to circumvent justice. Absalom should have died for killing Amnon. And so, so when you, you, then you start looking at her actual story and, and you contrast it with the story of Absalom and Amnon and you realize they're not really the same. Right? Her, her story talks about manslaughter. Right? This heated argument that, that led to a death. Absalom, that's premeditated murder. Right? When she comes to David, she's playing on David's emotions in different points. She's not pointing to God's word. And in short, what the woman is doing is she wants to justify breaking God's law in the interest of mercy. And the confusion is she, she has a couple lines that are the same really good. Right? You look at uh, verse 14 uh, when she says, God will not take away life. He devises means so the banished one will not remain an outcast. We're like, yeah, we, we understand that. Like, we know that. The problem is she wants to ignore the sin, the murder, and eliminate any consequence for it. And so what she's proposing is actually a compromise substitute for true justice. Can you imagine a scenario where one of your family members was murdered? And then the courts came to you and they said, you know, we were thinking about this. We, we don't really want to have a trial. We don't think that there should be any more bloodshed. We don't think that we should keep putting people through this. We just think that we should settle this and be done with it. How many people are like, yeah, I'm good with that? Right? No one's good with that. No one's going to agree to that. The woman's telling David, I need you to look past this premeditated, mater, premeditated murder so we can bring about some kind of peace and justice or peace and reconciliation. But you can't have peace and reconciliation in that, in that instance. It's an appeal to mercy absent of justice. Think about Jesus for a moment. See, in Jesus, what God does is God appeals to mercy through justice. That's Jesus' death in our place, right? When, when, when God appeals to mercy, he does it through justice. So our sin is addressed. It's not ignored. It's not set aside. It's not brushed under the rug. It's addressed, but it's addressed in Jesus. That's how it gets resolved. This woman, she's like, well, no substitute, no justice. Let, let's just make it go away. It's faux wisdom. 
And we don't ever, ever, ever want to get to a place where we're going to compromise justice for mercy or mercy for justice. Both are crucial, but one without the other is full wisdom, loved ones. This is an appeal to mercy absent of justice. And so David, after hearing her out, is like, eh, I, think, I think maybe I know what's going on. Jump down to verse 18. He says, don't hide anything from me, I ask you. He says, okay, yeah, say whatever. Verse 19, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? So David kind of, he's like, I think I know where this is going. Joab put you up to this, didn't he? And she pretty much says, yeah, I did. And so then in verse 21, David brings Joab in, and he's like, all right, go back and bring, you can bring Absalom back. But jump down to verse 24. This is really interesting. And the king said, this is speaking about Absalom. After jo- or Absalom has come back to Jerusalem, he says, let him dwell apart in his own house. He's not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. See, loved ones, this is an appeal to return, but it's absent of reconciliation. He has physically brought him back, but relationally, they're left unreconciled. It's it's unrestored. It's undealt with. Now, at some level, this shouldn't surprise us. The sin hasn't been dealt with. The sin hasn't been addressed. It's just deferred. It's pushed down the road. It's under the rug, but it's out there. It's not settled. It's not addressed and dealt with. And the reality is the passage of time in this case, a few years, but the passage of time doesn't mitigate the desire or the the desire for justice, right? It doesn't matter how long the time is. The passage of time doesn't eliminate, it doesn't mitigate the desire for justice. So I don't watch a lot of TV, but one TV show that I'll watch from time to time is Dateline. You ever watch any of those, right? Those murder mysteries. Um, And and I find particularly intriguing when I have those really old cold cases by someone that's murdered 20, 30, 40 years ago. And what's really interesting, you watch those, they'll interview friends and family. And you know what the friends and family say? They're like, you know what? After more and more time went by, we realized it didn't matter whether or not they caught the murderer. Yeah, just enough time passed, we didn't care. No, they never say that. Right? They don't ever say that. What do they say? Of course we want justice. Of course we want resolution. Of course we want to see this resolved. Because the passage of time or distance, or space. It doesn't resolve a lack or an absence of justice. And that's true with respect to us, with our sin. Right? God's not like, well, if I wait a while, it won't be so bad. No, it has to be resolved and satisfied in Jesus. And so when there's no justice, there cannot be reconciliation. And that's what's undermining all of this. There's this undealt with sin, this murder that's just left out there. And while Absalom can physically return, and yet relationally they're left unreconciled. And I wonder if you have relationships like this, where you might welcome someone physically, but you wouldn't welcome them relationally. An appeal to return, and yet absent of reconciliation. God help us that there would be no relationships like that in our lives. And then thirdly, the continuation of this faux wisdom is seen in verse 25 through 27. Right, we're plugging along with this narrative and this story and Absalom comes back and then this just feels like this weird interlude because in verse 25, it pretty much tells us that Absalom's pretty. Look at what it says. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. I mean, good for him. Glad he looks good, but you're like, why do we care? Why are you telling us this? Now listen, listen, listen. When you're reading in the Bible, and you find something that interrupts the story, and you're like, that's weird, that's odd. Why is that there? It's never an accident. The author always, always, always has a detail there for us, and we're meant to grab onto that. Here's my question. Does the description of Absalom remind us of anyone else in First or Second Samuel? Reminds us of Saul, right? right? We were told that Saul was really pretty, or handsome, or whatever words you want to use. See, I think what the author's doing in this moment is telling us Absalom is a new type of Saul. He's the next Saul. One who's attractive, one who looks the part, but is opposed to God's king and lacks all character. Because what you have here is you have an appeal to appearance, and yet it's absent of character. It's an appeal to appearance, but there's there's nothing about Absalom's character. We're just told about his physical appearance. Nothing, nothing, nothing about his righteousness or his... In fact, there's nothing about his character because we already know his character. 
And it's a great reminder for all of us that our outward appearance should mean far less than our inward character. Are we cultivating our inward character? Are we looking to grow in godliness or simply looking uh, to, 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 to uh, brush up our outward appearance? An appeal to appearance absent a character. Here's the final thing. Look at these last few verses and what we see here is an appeal to restoration, but it's absent of repentance. And so in verse 28, it says, Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. I mean, that's just odd, right? And then notice his response. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Now, why Joab's not coming, we're not totally sure. Now look at verse 30. Then he, Absalom, said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and his barley, he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. Passive-aggressive much? So Joab arose, right? The, his fields are burning. And so that gets Joab's attention. He's like, seriously? Why have your servants set my field on fire? Which really is an indication of Absalom's heart. There's not repentance. He's not sorrowful. Just wants his own way. He's still like a petulant little kid. Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask. Why have I come from Geshur? It would have been better for me to still be there. And then really this dare that he puts in front of David. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Well, there is guilt in you, and he should have put you to death years ago. And Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. I bet this was awkward. So the, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. It's an appeal to restoration, but it's absent of repentance. You get this really cold reunion. You get this dare from Absalom, like, hey, David, if you're going to do something, do something. But what this really reveals, there's no redeeming work in Absalom's life. He's not repentant. He's not changed. And all of this is important for us to remember in our relationship with the Lord. There will be no restoration apart from our repentance. Did you hear that? There's not going to be restoration between you and the Lord if there's not repentance in your life. In fact, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7 here. Uh, and, and this is on the heels of having written in 1 Corinthians of this church discipline. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. He says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, in 2 Corinthians, their, their restoration was tied to their repentance. Our restoration is tied to our repentance. David's restoration last week was tied to his repentance. Had Absalom repented, he would have been restored. But he didn't. Now, faux wisdom, faux wisdom will look for some kind of superficial restoration apart from repentance. And yet true wisdom knows that restoration of any sort can only come through repentance. And this is the deception of faux wisdom. And so as we close, let me just take a moment here to hold this now up into contrast with our great and glorious God. And I just phrased it this way, God's wisdom. And I'm going to key off what the woman said in verse 14 and restoring the banished one. So there's a way to restore the banished one. It's not her way, it's God's way. And God's way is a far better way. In fact, God speaks in Isaiah 43, there's this beautiful prophecy about God bringing his children back from the ends of the earth. That, that, that he's, from, from every corner of the earth, he's going to restore those who have been banished and sent away. But God's way is a way that upholds his righteousness because it won't forfeit his justice. It's steeped in his mercy. And so notice a few things about God's wisdom in restoring the banished one. First of all, this, that God pays the price. Right, a price has to be paid, and God is the one who chooses to pay that price. This is what Romans 3 tells us. It says in verse 24 and 25, it says, we are justified by his grace as a gift. Well, how so? Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We're justified because Jesus takes the death that we deserve. He dies the death that we should have died. And Jesus' death is the fulfillment of justice. And God's saving work in Jesus' death is the fulfillment of his mercy. 
And so we're spared from what we deserve. How can the banished one be restored? Well, first of all, God pays the price. Secondly, that God is the one who sets us free. That part of what, what Paul's talking about there in Romans 3 is that God sets us free. There's no debt. There's no obligation. I, I don't owe God anything. I don't have to earn anything. There's not still something that I have to do. It's paid in full. And this is because justice has been satisfied. And so in setting us free, Jesus is breaking the power and the bond of sin in our lives. And then finally this, the restoration of the banished one. God pays the price, God sets us free. Thirdly this, God restores us to himself. There's actual restoration, there's actual reconciliation that we can enter into a right relationship with God, we can enter into a right relationship with others. Why? Because unlike Absalom, who was not restored or reconciled, the work of Jesus enables us to fully and completely and entirely be restored to God. In fact, I'm going to close by reading uh, what Eric read for us here at the beginning of this service uh, from Ephesians chapter 2. And really, this is a situation, our situation is eerily similar to Absalom's. Alienated, isolated, and here's how God remedies that. Remember that it, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Praise God for how he restores banished sinners like you and I. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your restorative work. God, we thank you that um, you don't leave us, you don't walk away from us, you don't quit on us. You'd be more than justified to do so, but you don't. And so, Father, we thank you for the great mercy and wisdom that you extend and display to us. And so, Father, we pray as we think about banished sinners, God, as we think about faux wisdom, as we think about false love, as we think about all the ways that what we deserve is your wrath, and yet what we receive is your mercy and grace. So we pray, God, we pray that we would live not as the world lives, not in the deceptive, distortive, destructive realities of the world, but that we would be people who live under your truth, your love, your wisdom, having full confidence in your finished work to accomplish your good purposes for your people. We pray this in your name. Amen.